This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I think it's fair to say that someone back in the late 1980s, early 90s, had a chance to free Nelson Mandela. That person was F.W. de Klerk. He was the last president of apartheid South Africa. And the reason we can say he was the last president of apartheid South Africa is, is that they had elections after Nelson Mandela was released and Nelson Mandela took his place as the president. It so happens that yours truly found himself in South Africa, on February 2nd, 1990, when de Klerk announced that Mandela would be released from prison. I am very sad to report that I unfortunately missed the actual release by 24 hours. It was pretty clear in the immediate aftermath of that electrifying speech that the country was on pins and needles, waiting to see what would happen next. And luckily for South Africa, what happened next was that Mandela was released and there was a transition to majority rule. Majority in South Africa being black people. We uh, actually tried to reach out and have F.W. de Klerk on this program as a guest. I, I spoke to the representatives in New York of the South African government. They seemed surprisingly pleased that someone wanted to interview de Klerk. And I would note that we also simultaneously reached out to Nelson Mandela's people. But for one reason or another, we just weren't quite able to make either event happen. It's, it's a darn shame. I would have loved to have been able to ask questions to both F.W. de Klerk and Nelson Mandela, the co-awardees of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993. Looking back on it, I think that de Klerk did not, did not really get the credit that he deserves for having done what he did. The attitude uh, in America and elsewhere seemed to be, well, yeah, it's about time. But if you had been in South Africa and, and saw the, the power still held by white supremacist nationalists in that country, you would have realized that he did have a bit of a fine line to walk. I like the writing in The Economist of, of de Klerk's obituary. I think I will read a bit from it, if you don't mind. Mr. Miller points out that even if you do mind, we're, we're still going to do it. Note to The Economist, to make the close acquaintance of F. W. de Klerk was to look into the face of a Voortrekker. I guess the first sentence requires some explanation. Both the Dutch and the English settled into Cape Colony back in the 1600s, living pretty much side by side until the British got more liberal in the 1800s and decided that they were going to, for example, ban slavery outright. The Dutch speakers, the Afrikaners, decided that eh, the British were just too damn liberal for them, so they got together covered wagons like those in America who came to California through the Midwest in wagon trains. At this point in time, the British held what was to become Cape Colony and also the province of Natal, which is along the coast. The Afrikaners went inland and formed two states of their own, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. And when the British discovered there was a lot of gold and diamonds in, in those two states... Well, they decided that they should have more direct control, and that's what led to the Boer War and a whole lot of trouble. But back to the peace. 
Although he'd been comfortably brought up in suburban Johannesburg, his blue eyes still seemed to stare at the veld and the mountains the Afrikaner Volk had crossed on the Great Trek in the 19th century. And his set jaws seemed ready to declare, as he often did, the blunt but courteous words, You are wrong. His people had taken wagons eastward to escape the impositions on Dutch-speaking Boers of English imperialism, English anti-slavery laws, and the English language. For him, the Boer Wars against the British, in which his grandfather fought, were the first anti-colonial conflicts in Africa, and the Boers were another African tribe. His own Huguenot ancestors had arrived there in 1688. That made him an African born and bred through and through, as well as one of the strictly Calvinist people destined by God's hand to find their dwelling place in southern Africa. The de Klercks survived grandly. His uncle became South Africa's prime minister in the 1950s, and his father also served in government. Both men built up the National Party, which in 1948 introduced apartheid. My understanding is that the Afrikaners seized control of South Africa by virtue of getting a law passed that said anyone in the government had to be able to speak Afrikaans and English. The Afrikaners all learned to speak English. The English were not keen to learn Afrikaans. So they pretty much ceded control of the government to those that could. Continuing on. It was illegal for different races to marry, socialize, own property, or work without permission across most of the country. In 1970, black South Africans were barred from citizenship and expected to move from the cities to Bantu stands, distinct tribal states leaving whites as the majority. When I visited, they still had these hokey homelands set up, which were not recognized by any other nation on earth. They were supposed to provide autonomy and political control to those who ran these so-called homelands, but it, it, was, it, was, it was a bizarre system uh, designed to try and placate the world that was saying at this point, you, you got to end this system. To Frederick, as he grew up and studied behind the walls of his own culture, this seemed how things should be. God, having created the different races from Adam, also allotted the boundaries where each race should live. Apartheid was scripture, down to the letter, but then in 1993, as president, he took the whole system down. The first step came in 1990 when he vowed in Parliament to begin negotiations to end it. The African National Congress, ANC, the main group resisting apartheid, was to be unbanned, and its leader, Nelson Mandela, released from prison. Conservative MPs were shocked and heckled him. He brushed it aside. First, he'd always been a pragmatist, despite the tough talk. Politics, as Bismarck said, was the art of the possible. The silver thread in his career was loyalty to party policy, so he proposed only as much as he thought the party would bear. At some points, he sounded ultra-conservative. At others, as when he oversaw the repeal of the Mixed Marriages Act, he seemed liberal and almost revolutionary. His conversion had been gradual. It began when he had to deal with black and colored, which were mixed-race clients, in his first legal practice. As a politician, after 1972, he became still more involved with other races, by the late 1980s, he started to look hard at himself on his knees before God to find out where he and the party should go. Apartheid was under increasing strain. Publicly, he boasted that South Africa could get around sanctions. Privately, he knew it was teetering over the abyss. In South Africa's first all-race elections in 1994, the ANC swept the board with two-thirds of the vote, a share de Klerk thought was unhealthy. He was appointed deputy president in Mandela's new government of national unity, which felt humiliating. And working with Mandela, despite some mutual respect, was a strain. 
When they jointly won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1993, he found himself seething during Mandela's speech, biting his tongue to keep his fury back. Frankly, he felt he had done more than Mandela to bring apartheid down. To convince his own party had been bruising. At one peak in the terrible unrest, he had defied his own generals who wanted to bring in martial law. The chief reason for Mandela's coolness toward him was that he would not apologize for apartheid or declare it intrinsically evil. But almost to the end, he could not do that. The piece notes that only in the end, in a video released posthumously, did he utter the word wrong. We had a chance to speak with author David Lamb about his book on Vietnam some years back. Lamb had written a previous book titled The Africans, which had talked about all of the countries in Africa at one point or another, I think. At the end of our enjoyable talk we had about his book on Vietnam, I had to refer back to that, um, that previous work, The Africans, and, and said to him that I was as surprised probably as he was that despite the uh, foreboding people had about what was going to happen in South Africa, and many, many people feared a major bloodbath, the country was able to trans... The, couple was, the country was able to make that transformation into a modern state and do so without racial violence on a grand scale. Lamb confessed that he too was a bit surprised by it, but very heartened to see that it had gone that way. I, I do want to note before we completely leave this topic that it, it has not all been a bed of roses in South Africa. Nelson Mandela unified the country as its president, but the other ANC political leaders which followed him were not so stellar. Thabo Mbeki tried to convince the South African populace that AIDS was a big hoax. Jacob Zuma seemed to run a, a, a criminal op- operation that you know, would have done Donald Trump proud. And, are some, and some are wondering currently whether the ANC is losing its dominance in the country. An article by Stephen Groot in the Daily Maverick in South Africa said that the ANC lock on national power is starting to slip. The once revered party of Nelson Mandela has dominated South African politics since the end of apartheid in 1994, when it won the country's first free elections and ushered in a new era of black majority rule. But in last week's municipal elections, the ANC took only 46% of the total vote. The first time the party has won less than 50% in elections nationwide. Sure, the pandemic depressed turnout to an all-time low, but that wasn't the ANC's biggest problem. Instead, a massive corruption scandal around the procurement of COVID-19-related medical gear has horrified and repulsed many voters. South Africans are tiring of a ruling party that seems more focused on cronyism and kickbacks than on taking the country, than on tackling the country's many problems. Well, we'll Keep an eye on what's happening down there. It's a lovely country, and we wish for them only the best. All right, we haven't recorded here for a while on this program, so I think I'm going to grab some oddball items because, well, week in and week out, that's often our favorite stuff. Let's start with a letter to The Economist that came in the wake of that, uh, that description that we talked about on the last program where um, the French-Canadian politician was being booed for the fact that he could not speak good French. A man named Jim Miller from Minneapolis wrote the magazine to say, As an adult, I tried to learn the French language. Our teacher, a native French speaker, told us beginners to make over-exaggerated facial gestures in order to produce sounds common in the French language. Her reasoning was that we were trying to pronounce French with an English mouth. We needed to retrain our mouth to move correctly to produce the right sounds. 
If we were ever in doubt on how to pronounce something, she had a standing rule. When speaking French, you must always position your lips so that if required, they are always in position to give a kiss on a moment's notice. Sacre bleu. And here's one that just has to make you laugh, I think. Nordic Track is battling customers who hacked its treadmills in order to watch Netflix and take Zoom calls, according to Wired.com. The best part of Nordic Track's $4,000 X32i treadmill, some runners say, is its 32-inch high-definition screen. (laughs) The machine is designed to serve up the company's own videos of exercise classes and running routes. But some users figured out they could override the software to access the underlying Android operating system, sideload apps, and even install third-party browsers to fire up videos they want to watch while exercising. Nordic Track began automatically updating its exercise equipment in October to block access to privilege mode. The move put Nordic Track at the center of the right-to-repair debate over how much control consumers should retain over tech products they have purchased. You know, here at Radio Parallels, we take the position, if somebody wants to watch Pootie Tang while they're on their Nordic Track, well then, damn it, they ought to be allowed to do so. Oh, and Pootie Tang, in case you're unfamiliar, is a really, really bizarre and really looks like really bad movie about some sort of black superhero, super agent. I- I'm not sure. Neither Miss Miller and I have watched it. However, he did pull up the trailer for me to watch. And I have to say, it looks so bad that <laughs> we might want to get liquored up one night and just check it out. What do you say? Here's another item from The Week magazine. It reports that Madonna's former Miami mansion has been put on the market for $31 million by its current owner, a dog. Apparently, the pop star sold the eight-bedroom property in back in 2000 to the trust of Gunther IV, who is a German shepherd. And although we don't see how this is possible, apparently Gunther IV passed it down to grandson Gunther VI. These dogs apparently were the beneficiaries of a trust now worth about $500 million bequeathed to Gunther III by his owner, a German countess, when she died in 1992. Gunther VI, whose main residence is in Tuscany, travels by private jet and as a chef to prepare his meals. When in Miami, he lives in Madonna's former master bedroom, said the sales agent. And no, we didn't fact check this one. It doesn't seem humanly possible. But then again, working in a company photo of what appears to be Gunther VI near the pool and have to say, well, maybe. No, Mr. Will, there were not a bunch of hot poodles in the background of the photo. Aww. I don't know whether of you caught the Monday night football game between the Seattle Seahawks and Washington football team. But I was amused to note that they still cannot come up with a name that's going to be politically correct for the former Redskins. Now, the World Series just went to the Atlanta Braves, and (laughs) they seem to be uh, not under the gun. I don't know. We noted on this program a while ago that Squaw Valley is going to have to be renamed, according to some, and I I guess they're going to do it. Maybe they'll take a page from uh, the Prince playbook and refer to it as the valley formerly known as Squaw. But I guess some really think that squaw is a derogatory term, and I haven't looked into it. Perhaps, I don't know. I don't know. I just just have some skepticism over some of this. But it turns out the U.S. Interior Secretary, Deb Haaland, announced last Friday, well, she's formally declaring squaw a derogatory term. 
and says she's taking steps to remove it from federal government use and to replace other derogatory place names which went unmentioned in the article. We presume they're not going to rename Fishkill New York out of concerns that it, you know, showed a lack of respect for uh, the fisheries of the nation. I know that Fishkill is actually a Dutch name. But anyway, our U.S. Interior Secretary, Deb Haaland, is the first Native American to lead a cabinet agency. She's from Laguna Pueblo in New Mexico. We do hope she finds other things to do with her time besides uh, renamed derogatory uh, labels. And kind of in the same vein here, uh, I think, of of political correctness, I have a piece here from uh, New Scientist, co-written by Leal Liverpool, a science writer based in Berlin, and Jennifer Tsai, a physician and writer based in Connecticut. The thrust of this piece in New Scientist magazine is that we should not rely on race or or ethnicity when interpreting medical test results. It must stop, they say. The piece starts out by asking, should your race or ethnicity influence the prescription you get from your doctor? Both are still used in medicine to interpret test results and guide treatment decisions. But the evidence is questionable, and the approach can cause serious harm, which is unspecified. The piece tries to claim that uh, the medical guidelines in the U.S. and the U.K. and elsewhere, which, which basically have algorithms that contain adjustments for race and ethnicity, date back to U.S. slaveholder Samuel Cartwright in the late 1800s, who thought that black people had naturally low lung capacities, and, and so were thus healthier when enslaved. I don't know where Ms. Liverpool and Ms. Sy or Dr. Sy are getting their data, but uh, wow, this, this looks a little off base to moi. Later in the piece, they know race-based decisions are still permeating other parts of medicine with little evidence to support them. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, and no, I did not know there was such an agency, but apparently they've gotten busy trying to decline to review But they have apparently decided to review their guidelines on high blood pressure treatment, which recommends different drugs for black people compared with everyone else. This this is standard medicine, folks. The guidance currently says that doctors should prescribe drugs called ACE inhibitors for people under the age of 55 with high blood pressure because they're very effective and have minimal side effects. The piece says, well, unless they're of black African or African Caribbean family origin which they put in quotes, says, in which case they should receive different drugs. Well, yeah, the reason there is such a rule is that studies showed that blacks did not respond well to ACE inhibitors for whatever genetic reason. Says the piece, Dinesh Gopal, a general practitioner who is also at Queen Mary University in London, and his colleagues have written to NICE twice over the past year requesting an urgent review of this guideline. But it declined both cases, responding that Evidence suggests there are clinically meaningful differences in the effectiveness of treatments for individuals in these family origin subgroups. And the reason for that is that studies show such is the case. But note, Ms. Liverpool and Dr. Sai, Gopal and others dispute this evidence, particularly given that race and ethnicity are poorly defined social constructs with no biological basis. Okay, okay, stop. Race and ethnicity do have something to do with one's biology. You know any people of Irish extraction who are at risk for sickle cell anemia? No, Mr. Miller. The black Irish refer to something else entirely. Oh. No, I'm sorry. This is crap. This is nonsense. 
You know, people say that that gender is a social construct. I have to say as a biologist, no, it's not. It's a biological reality. People have different races and different ethnicities because there are subtle genetic differences between individuals in one group versus another. There are models for races out there. Dog breeds, for example. All dogs are canis familiaris. They all can interbreed. A Great Dane and a Chihuahua, if you can somehow engineer it. But obviously, a dachshund is quite a different kettle of fish than a golden retriever. And the reason for that is that there are very slight but important genetic differences between one and another. Someone tells you that race and ethnicity has no biological basis, doesn't know what he or she is talking about. This piece is an example of politically correct writing. Writing where one's political orientation is overriding basic biology. For more on that, we would refer you to a a show we did some years back with author author Peter Pringle, uh, who wrote a book about the murder of Nikolai Vavilov, an important figure in science in the 20th century, who fell victim of politics in the Soviet Union. He wrote about genetics in such a way as to irritate uh, Joseph Stalin and others in the Soviet government who felt that uh, genetics meant nothing and should be regarded as unimportant. With, we would like to add, catastrophic results for Soviet agriculture. Anyway, I've never written a letter to the editor to New Scientist, but I think I'm going to do so in this case. I think the magazine really does need to vet its commentaries just a little more closely in the future. This, this is not science. It's a science magazine. This is not science. According to these authors, I guess, the physicians in America should just should give black people ACE inhibitors, even if they don't work. Anyway, let's move on. Let's lighten the load, shall we, with, uh, with, with some of the good, the bad, and the ugly. And what do you know? I got three copies of the Week magazine dating back to our last program. So I guess I guess we'll do two goods, two bads, and two uglies. How's that sound? And apologies on my part. I really can't wait for your reply before I continue. The Week noted a couple weeks back that it was a good week for calling in sick after North Dakota State Representative Jeff Hoverson missed his own anti-vaccination rally when he got COVID. To his credit, I guess Hoverson sent word the disease is real. And like a really bad flu. Well, better late than never. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for after the member, after a member of Vietnam's Communist Party, who was in the UK for the climate summit, laid a wreath on the London grave of Karl Marx. He then dined on a $2,000 a plate gold wrapped steak at the restaurant of flamboyant chef Nuzret Salt Bay Coquille. And no, we don't know anything about Nuzret, Salt Bay, Koki, but man, his steaks apparently are really expensive. We are pretty sure Karl Marx would not approve. And it was an ugly week for, I don't know, is this political correctness, reverse political correctness? I don't know. Here's the story. Apparently a Native American group is suing the state of Colorado to reverse its recent ban on Native American-themed high school mascots. The Native American Guardians Association contends 
that a state ban on schools using the team using team names such as Warriors or Indians makes it harder for Native Americans to reclaim names and images that were once directed at them as insults and make them badges of pride. Well, curious viewpoint. And moving right along, it was a good week also, a couple weeks back for Snowflakes. With the unveiling during Dubai's Design Week Festival of the Themis, I don't know what that is, but whatever. Dubai's Design Week Festival of the Themis, a lamp-sized device that monitors human speech and sets off an, quote, extremely annoying, unquote, alarm, lasting two minutes if it hears any, quote, racist remarks, unquote, or, quote, offensive jokes, unquote. And I tell you what. That's the last time Radio Parallax bothers to send an email to Dubai with our story about the priest, the minister, and the rabbi. It was, on the other hand, we'd have to say a bad week for public health with the news that an Austrian brothel has offered free sex with the lady of your choice to any customer who takes advantage of its on-site COVID-19 vaccination center. What was he addressing that again? (laughs) Said the brothel's owner, we have a great vaccination site. Well, you might want to check that out, Mr. McMillan. I will. Health is very important to me. Oh, I understand. And it was also an ugly week for public health a couple weeks back with the news that some Americans who complied with vaccination mandates are now seeking ways to, quote, undo, unquote, the shots. They're apparently using baking soda baths, cupping, and other methods to take nanotechnologies out of you, as anti-vaxxer Dr. Kerry Medjed put it. Virologist Dr. Angela Rasmussen said none of the treatments work, but the trend suggests a lot of those people who previously were saying vaccines are terrible and I never want to do it are actually doing it. And no, we have no information on whether any of these people have uh, decided to follow up on Donald Trump's suggestions that you could use UV light inside the body or perhaps ingest bleach. All right, in the minute or so we have left, we want to direct your attention that uh, the, the, the evening sky currently has a, quite a display up there of Venus, Saturn, and Jupiter all in a row. Very cool. Venus is the brightest. Jupiter is the second brightest. Check it out. And we hope you also checked out the, the lunar eclipse coinciding with the beaver moon, which we mocked some time ago. And we do know that Astronomy Magazine published a list of the different named moons. Now, I don't understand this because every year there's 13 full moons. Anyway, we're a little confused by a, a picture that appeared in Astronomy Magazine that did portray the last full moon as the beaver moon. But there's 12-plus full moons every year, and, and Astronomy only listed names for eight of them for keeping track and we're pretty sure you're not, that the full moon for December was the cold moon, January the wolf moon, February the snow moon, March the worm moon, April the pink moon, May the flower moon, at which point they stopped naming them. I don't know what's going on. This is all nonsense. And yes, every so often they make a big deal in papers about how we're having a blue moon this month, which they now interpret as a month in which there's a full moon at the start and a full moon at the end. The second one's called the blue moon. We don't think this is correct. In fact, we're certain that there's another origin for the term of blue moon. And I think years ago, we actually dredged up the information and talked about it. But, you know, we're not going to do it again. Let's face it, not that big a deal. Listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away. We got a lot more to talk about. Doggone it. Get it, 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 get it,
bomb, 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 bomb.